We are in Revelation chapter 2 tonight. We are going to look at the church of Smyrna. The message tonight is Smyrna's suffering, Revelation 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11, and I will tell you, just about a week ago, I was tuned in to focus on the family. I think I was headed to the church, and I had the privilege once again to hear from Johnny Erickson Tata. And if you've, uh, are you familiar with Johnny, you know that she had a diving accident when she was 18. She dove into the ocean, hit a sandbar, and became a quadriplegic. So she, over the years, she's amazed people with her ability to paint with a paintbrush in her mouth and her joyful attitude, her singing voice. She's got a wheelchair ministry that reaches all over the world, and she has really uh, used her suffering as a platform to reach many, many souls and to go deeper with God. And among the many amazing things that she said that were so humbling during that broadcast, one thing that she said is that she and her husband, I think his name is Ken, had a chance to go to the Holy Land, and she had uh, really longed to go to the Holy Land for many, many years, and she ended up at the Pool of Bethesda. And the Pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5 is the place where Jesus did that miraculous healing of the man who said that he wants to get into the water, but before the water, he can get into the water, somebody else goes before him, and Jesus heals the man. And Johnny said it was late in the afternoon, there was nobody around, they were at the pool of Bethesda, and she said many, many times in her heart and mind, she had pictured this scene where all these crippled people were around the pool, and Jesus was there, and she imagined herself there. And what I thought was coming was that she imagined herself being healed by Jesus at the pool. But she said she began to praise God uh, that afternoon at the pool of Bethesda for him not healing her. She began to thank him for not being healed. And I wonder if any of us have ever had a prayer where we began to thank God for not being healed. I mean, I was a little taken back by why she said that. And then she said, and the reason is, is because I've known a depth with God because of my suffering and had a platform to the world that I wouldn't have had any other way. And she, she, I think she's conjectured over the years what may have happened to her had she not had the diving accident, what she would have gone on to be. Not that long ago, on a Sunday morning, we looked at... um, Another man named Nick Vujicic, who has no arms and no legs. He actually has tiny little legs, little flippers, which he does amazing things with. And we talked about how people um, just jam into stadiums to see this man. They hug him, and he gives everybody hope, and he has no arms and no legs. And what we get a glimpse into when we see lives like this, and, and I think it's very humbling when you take a look at these lives, is you get a glimpse into people who suffer probably more than any of us could ever imagine. Now, some of you are going through your own suffering. You've had seasons of serious suffering, and and I'm sure you have your question marks, and I certainly have mine when times of suffering occur. But one thing I want you to know is that every worldview has to deal with the issue of suffering. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, an agnostic, and an atheist. You know, if you believe in an Eastern religion, whatever you believe, you have to face the reality of suffering in the world because it's here, and we all go through it. And the questions that we really have, you know, hard questions come at the Christian faith from atheists and agnostics about why we suffer, how could a God of love allow us to suffer, But if you ever listen to the atheists and the agnostics, I'll tell you, their answers when it comes to suffering are not terribly exhilarating. They really have no answers. They think it's just random luck in a chance universe. They think it's just the roll of the dice and nobody's really rolling the dice anyway. But in the Christian worldview, there is a view into suffering that helps at least make sense of it in part. And here's some of what it is. You cannot really grow as a Christian unless you experience some suffering. Now, none of us enjoy elongated periods of suffering, and we certainly all know that there's going to be a time when we suffer and we leave this planet. We all have to face our own mortality. But we're going to look at a little church in Asia Minor with just a few verses tonight And we're going to deal with the issue of suffering, and we're going to have to take it head on. And I will tell you right up front, it's not my favorite subject. 
I don't plan Bible studies. Hey, you know what? Let's talk about suffering tonight. <laughs> what do you guys think? Right? But, but here as we move through the scriptures, we're going to deal with a suffering church. And you may be suffering tonight. And you may be asking big questions about suffering. Or you may be watching someone else go through suffering and you're asking some questions as well. I will say this. If we don't preach suffering as part of the Christian worldview, that some people who become Christians are going to suffer, then we have not preached the fullness of the gospel. I think it is unfair to people to say to them, just come to Jesus and everything's just going to be peachy keen. Right? Wrong. We all know that when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you just have smooth sailing. Now, the weight of sin is removed off your shoulders and you are forgiven and, and you're right with God and all of that is beyond what I could even speak with words. But at the same time, we know we have an enemy, we have a broken world and we have this flesh and the world and the devil that we all have to deal with. And it's not an easy battle. And Christians tend to... we. we we put on our Christian face. How you doing? Bless, brother. Bless. But sometimes we're not doing great. And really, when we give each other the right to speak openly and freely about our suffering and even our disappointment with ourselves in suffering, have you ever uh, looked at yourself and said, Lord, I failed to love that person well while they were suffering? Have you ever experienced some of those guilt feelings? Like somebody's going through stuff and you just don't know what to do for them. So you, you almost feel helpless. You feel weird and awkward. And, you know, those all can be situations that we go through. I want to read a few quotes as I, I shared a message on the purpose of suffering some years ago. And here's uh, something from Norman Geisler in his Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics. He says, what we do know is that there is a good purpose for much evil. Warning pains have a good purpose. In fact, the ability to have pain has a good purpose. For if we had no nervous system, we could destroy ourselves without even feeling any pain. Also, physical pain can be a warning to save us from moral disaster. As C.S. Lewis has noted, pain is God's megaphone to warn a morally deaf world. We know that oftentimes people come to faith in their greatest pain. Why? Because when you're in pain and you're suffering, you have, you're out of options. You can't fix it. And when you can't fix it, you have to look up. And sometimes faith is born in the cauldron of adversity, if you know what I'm saying. We, we have no other options, and we're driven to God. Ben Franklin said, those things that hurt instruct. We become Christians, and we go through seasons of pain, and we're like, Lord, what are you doing in my life? But sometimes we go deeper with God than we ever would have gone before had we not had pain. As C.S. Lewis put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. And this is the life that we face as Christians, as believers. Charles Swindoll says, it's my observation that in the school of life, suffering is a required course in the curriculum. It is never an elective. And we never graduate out of this course either. Our tendency is to find an escape from the hurts, so that we can somehow feel better and we'll do anything to feel better rather than to let hurt run its course. Carl Jung, I think is how you say it, Swiss psychiatrist, now dead, wrote, neurosis is always the substitute for legitimate suffering. Isn't that insightful? An insightful statement, says Swindoll. By circumventing and by attempting to escape, by getting away from the pain or the hurt, we build the neuroses of our lives, and they often take the place of legitimate suffering. Sometimes we want to rescue ourselves and others from suffering, and that's understandable. But sometimes the best thing that we can do is go through it and shed our tears and go through the healing process, and we often are better. Philip Yancey, after wide-ranging research into the topic of suffering, wrote these words. He said, quote, As I visited people whose pain far exceeded my own, I was surprised by its effects. Suffering seemed as likely to reinforce, reinforce faith as to sow agnosticism. Scottish theologian James S. Stewart said, It is the spectators, the people who are outside looking at the tragedy, from whose ranks the skeptics come. It is not those who are actually in the arena and who know suffering from the inside. Indeed, 
The fact is that it is the world's greatest sufferers who have produced the shining examples of unconquerable faith. Just think for a moment at the, at the legendary stories that you're familiar with of people who have uh, exercised the greatest acts of love and sacrifice. Of course, the preeminent example is Jesus himself who entered into our pain. We worship him, we laud him, we celebrate him because he suffered in our, on our behalf. Uh, he suffered in our place, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And so Jesus is our example. Helen Keller shared these words, although the world is full of suffering, it is also full of overcoming it. And this book, this book of Revelation, is a book about overcomers. To he who overcomes, Jesus says oftentimes, I will do this, I will do that, I will give you uh, your share in the tree of life. I will give you a new name. I will do this and I will do that to him who overcomes, to her who overcomes. This is what this book is about. It's about overcoming faith. It's about the, a person who can look at the fierce lion in the arena, face uh, persecution and temptation and struggle, face you know being shunned by family, face disease and difficulty, and still say, it is well with my soul. And that is what tonight is about. Would you pray with me, Father? As we look at Smyrna's suffering, uh, I believe you have an appointment for all of us to be here tonight, to hear these words. And so we're just gonna say, like you've said in the book, we're gonna pray. Let us have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To this church tonight, to anyone who will hear this later, watch this video, hear my voice on the website or the radio at a future date. May you, Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to your church, that you walk in the midst of your people, you're in the midst of the lampstands, you love us, and you will see us to the finish line. F Father, give us faith tonight. Increase our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The second letter uh, of the seven to the church of Smyrna is located in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 8. As I've mentioned, we're going to deal with seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And as we deal with these churches, I just want to show you the historic location of Smyrna. Uh, Asia Minor is actually modern-day Turkey, and Smyrna is on the coast there. Uh, today, its name is Itzmir, and it's located, of course, in modern Turkey right there on the coast of the Aegean Sea. There are ruins in this area that you can search on the internet. These are just a few that I'd like to show you. They've done some archaeological digs in this area, but the area is quite populated, so there's still quite a bit going on there. But uh, here are some of the ruins, some of the ancient ruins that you can see. And a lot of these Bible locations, when you do some research on them, you can see that there are ruins and visitor sites and centers and that kind of thing that you can do some research on. In many of these places, you'll find that there was an agora, A.G., O-R-A, and the Agora was basically the town square or the place that you walked up to some of the religious sites. This happens to be the Agora in Smyrna. Smyrna was a town that was selected for one of the temples to the emperor. They, they put their hat, uh, their hat in the ring. They were among like 10 cities, and they were chosen to build a temple for the emperor. So there was the imperial cult emperor worship going on here. Um, this is kind of the Agora area, the lower Agora, these uh, neat-looking arches that you can see today. And this is a statue of a lion that dates back to this time. And many of the Christians in these situations, because Rome was dominating the world, had to face uh, the lion, and they had to face the Colosseum and all of these difficulties as they went through uh, their trials. Uh, Smyrna is the only, one of only two churches in the seven that is not criticized by Jesus. There's no criticism given. There's only encouragement given. And I will say this to you. The other church of the seven that gets no criticism is the church of Philadelphia. So only two of the seven get no criticism. Smyrna is one of them. And I don't think that means that Smyrna was a perfect church because, as you know, there are no perfect churches, Right? The old saying is, you know, somebody says, I don't want to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites in the church. And somebody says, well, if you find a church with no hypocrites, don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> right? Look, we're all, as Christians, we don't want to be uh, hypocritical. We don't want to be false. But sometimes we deal with hypocrisy. 
that is on the inside. You know, sometimes we manifest something on the outside, but it's not really what's going on on the inside. So we can wear a mask as well. Now, we don't want to be a true phony like Judas was. He wore a mask. He was a true phony. But sometimes we struggle with a level of hypocrisy. And I'll, I'm saying this because even though Jesus does not criticize the church, I think one of the reasons that he doesn't, and this is my own personal opinion, is because they're going through so much suffering. We don't want to kick people when they're down. So you may have a legitimate criticism of somebody, and it's legitimate for you to speak the truth in love, but you may want to wait if they're going through a time of hard suffering. Amen? It's not the time to rattle off a bunch of things that they do wrong when they're going through suffering. You can pick another time for that. And if you failed in that area and you've kicked somebody when they're down, join the club. I've done the same thing. I've found myself not being as sensitive as I should be to other people's sufferings. And then when you go through your own suffering, then you go, gee golly, now I'm starting to get an idea of what other people go through. <laughs> forgive me, Lord. Ever had one of those moments? Oh, forgive me, Lord. I can, I can be callous to other people's suffering, and I don't want to do that. Now, the church of Smyrna is a church that is going through tribulation, as I mentioned. They're going through suffering, and they're going to learn some deep things about Jesus. Notice in Revelation 2.8, it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this. If you uh, like to write in your margin of your Bible, you could just say, Thus says the Lord, because Jesus is the Lord. He's about to speak to the church at Smyrna. Uh, turn to the book of 1 Peter for a second, just a few pages back towards the Gospels. 1 Peter 5, as Peter is dealing with the suffering church, 1 Peter 5 he says these words, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. That's 1 Peter 5, 7, written to a suffering church. When we're suffering, we have a lot of anxiety. And the... Um, Remedy for our anxiety, at least one remedy, one big remedy for anxiety is to cast all your anxiety to the Lord because he cares for you. He wants you to cast all of it, not some of it, and he wants you to do it because he loves you, which is awesome. Notice the context. Be of sober spirit. The very next verse is the warning about the devil because when we don't cast all our anxiety upon God and we carry it and we get weighed down, we become prey for the enemy. It says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Sometimes when we're going through suffering, we isolate ourselves. We're like the deer by the water in those hunting videos on National Geographic when the lion's hunting and the little skittish deer is by the water, and it's all alone away from the, the rest of the pack, and you say, get out of the house, <laughs> run away, right? And it's a... And it doesn't know what's about to come. So when we go through pain, we can tend to isolate ourselves. We can tend to maybe, instead of praying, we do pity parties. And look, that's very human. But the encouragement here is to cast all of our anxiety. We're stronger that way. And we, we resist him, verse 9, 1 Peter 5, firm in our faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by our, our brethren who are in the world. And notice it says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. If you go to chapter 2 for a second, as Peter deals, 1 Peter 2, with suffering as his topic to this church, he says these words, 1 Peter 2, 21. He says, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his step, in his steps. Who committed, 1 Peter 2.22, no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we may or might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian 
of your souls. Turn back to Revelation chapter 2. So as we look at Smyrna, this suffering church, we can see that um, suffering it has been the, uh, I guess in many ways, the pattern for the church. Uh, very, very few Christians get off. Uh, very few Christians don't have to take this course more than once. Our brethren in the Middle East that I think many Christians in the West don't want to talk about right now are going through terrible, terrible suffering. Crucifixions, children being executed. Uh, I could go on and on. Uh, sometimes the stories come over my email and I don't want to look again because I know what I'm going to see and what we're going to have to face in terms of just looking at the reality of suffering in our world. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? If you look at the word Smyrna, look at the middle of the word, take off the S and the N-A at the end, and you can see the word begin to develop, myrrh. The word Smyrna actually comes from the idea or the root of the word myrrh. And uh, as you look at the idea of myrrh, it's a plant, it's an extract from a stiff branch tree with white flowers and a plum-like fruit. Uh, after myrrh was extracted from the wood, it soon hardened and was valued as an article of trade. It was an, an ingredient in, uh, used in anointing oil in Exodus 30, verse 23, and was used as a perfume in Psalm 45, 8, for example. In purification rites for women in Esther 2, 12, as a gift for the infant Jesus in Matthew 2, 11, and used in embalming in John 19, 39. When myrrh is crushed, what happens is it gives off a, an aroma uh, a pleasant fragrance. And when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Luke says he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood to the ground, and he was under terrible pressure. This is the idea of the, the, the Savior being crushed with the weight of the coming cross. So he was going through his passion, which started in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then went to his beating and his trial and all of that, and then through the cross and the resurrection. And in Gethsemane, when Jesus went through his Gethsemane, a Gethsemane literally was something that was used as a pillar that crushed olives and produced the uh, quite uh, important olive oil that would run down into a chamber. And Jesus was literally at Gethsemane being crushed with the weight or the prospects of the cross and he bled, as it were, or he bled out of his sweat glands. At least that's one major view. And that's because it's possible that under the pressure, tiny capillaries under his skin were bursting, not so much from being beaten, but feeling internal pressure. Remember, Jesus was fully human. And so when you're feeling the weight of pressure, you have a high priest, Hebrews 4, who can sympathize with your weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as you are yet without sin. So when you feel great pressure, when you feel stress, that's the time to turn to God, not to run away. Jesus knows what it means to go through stress. He went through Gethsemane. He knew that, you know, one of his apostles was coming to betray him. He knew that Peter was about to deny him. He knew there was a lot of stuff that was going to go down. He was going to die by crucifixion the next day. You want to talk about pressure? Knowing the way you're going to die, knowing how you're going to suffer? So Jesus is our friend in suffering, and we can turn to him and find what we need in him. Smyrna was about 35 miles um, from north of Ephesus on that trade route that I've been talking to you about, and that may be part of the reason why the, uh, this is the church that's uh, dealt with second among the seven. Notice as Jesus addresses the church, he addresses them as the first and the last who was dead. That's Revelation 2.8, middle of the verse the first and the last. We've uh, studied this a little bit, and as we have, the first and the last is another way of saying the alpha and the omega, or the beginning and the end. So when Jesus claims to be the first and the last, he's claiming to be eternal God. He's the one who started it, and he's the one who's going to finish it. He is the beginning and the end and the middle. Amen? That's who Jesus is. And so by saying I'm the first and the last, he's saying in essence to this church, I'm the eternal one and I've got the world in my hands. I started it, I'm gonna end it. I gave you life and I know when you're gonna come home to be with me and I'm the eternal one. Every description of Jesus to the seven churches is taken from chapter one. Go to chapter one, look at verse 17. 
when John sees the vision of the resurrected Christ, and you may be saying, well, you know, is this just a book? What right does Jesus have to speak on subjects like this? Because he proved that he is divine by the immutable fact of the resurrection. He said, kill my body, and in three days I will raise it again. So Houdini said he was coming back. We haven't heard from him. Right? There's other people who thought they would defeat death or find the, you know, the, the fountain of life and all of that, but nobody's, nobody's doing it. There are people who apparently get their heads cut off and freeze them and hope that you know, somehow science will catch up. I don't think that's going to work either because I don't know how long those freezers actually last. I don't think they're eternal. But anyway, never mind. That's... But Jesus says these words. He says, don't be afraid. Revelation 1.17, go to the first part of the verse. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, and he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Notice, the living one, I was dead, that's Jesus, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. When Jesus talks to the church at Smyrna, he uses a descriptor from chapter 1 to reaffirm his identity. I can speak to you with confidence about life and death because I died and I conquered death and I brought life and immortality to light through the gospel and I got the keys to death and Hades. And so this is why when Smyrna is being addressed, they can have confidence because Jesus is the living one. I became dead and I am alive again. Jesus will never die again. Hebrews 7.16 says he has the power of an indestructible life. Acts 2.24 says it was impossible for death to hold him. He is the author. The Greek word is the archegos of life. He's the author of life. And being the author of life, he died once for our sins and he will never die again. So Jesus, in the introduction to Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 8, says... I'm the first and the last. I was dead, and I have come to life. And he says this. Thus says the Lord, I know your trouble. Some of you need to mark that. Because some of you have been singing the song lately, Nobody knows the trouble I see. <laughs> but Jesus knows. Jesus walks among the lampstands. He walks among the churches, and he says, I know your trouble. In fact, this word is actually tribulation because it's the Greek word again, flipsis. And as we've looked at the concept of the tribulation and the great tribulation, I told you that every time in the book of Revelation the word tribulation shows up, it always is in reference to the church. And Jesus says to the church at Smyrna, I know your tribulation. I know you're going through tribulation. I know you're going through flip, flipsis right now is the Greek word. And I know your poverty but you are rich. Now, as you read commentaries on the church at Smyrna, commentators will say that their persecution or their tribulation is probably directly connected to their poverty or their impoverished state. You might ask why. Here's why. In the ancient world, if you lived in a place like Smyrna, what was happening is there was a worship of the emperor going on. And if Domitian is the emperor of the time, at the annual festival for the emperor, you had to... Uh, basically give a sacrifice to the emperor and laud him as some sort of god. The Jews were able to escape this in the towns, and there's many synagogues still in the area of Smyrna today. They could offer a sacrifice to the emperor as a ruler, but they were given the right to not worship him as a god. But here's what happened to the Christian church at the time. The Jewish people who rejected the Christian faith were very quick to tell on the Christians and say they are not a sect of Judaism. They are not an offshoot of Judaism. They are their own thing. We know nothing of them. We reject them. Therefore, Rome did not allow the Christians to offer the same type of sacrifice as just to a ruler, but they demanded that they worship Caesar as God. And because the Jewish adversaries of the time rejecting Christianity were quick to turn them in, the church was exposed. And what happened was, now the church was forced to make a decision. Each annual celebration, they, would, uh, they knew where the Christians were, and they said to them, you are now going to say Caesar is Lord. And when the Christians refused, they were often imprisoned 
and some of them were put to death. And this is what was happening. This was their tribulation. They were not only in tribulation, but impoverished, as I mentioned. And what commentators say is that they were often kicked out of the trade guilds, and it was very difficult to make a living as a Christian because once you came out as a Christian and people knew who you were, they didn't want to hire you at their company. There was a lot of, uh, you know, just persecution that was happening. And so many of the Christians were paying the price in their pocketbook. They could find no work. They could find no food. As the book of Revelation unfolds, the Antichrist, who we believe is yet future, will tell people that they must take a mark in order to buy or sell. And without this mark, they will not be able to buy basic necessities for their family. You can imagine the type of decisions that had to be made in this first century context. If you were going to be a Christian, it was potentially going to cost you everything. In much modern Christianity, you know, we, we get a little mad if the church service goes an extra 20 minutes and we didn't get to have our cheeseburger, you know, by a certain time. And sometimes, sadly, that's the depth of our Christianity, and that's sad. But people in Smyrna were making life and death decisions, and to hold on to Jesus meant sometimes that you had no job. He said, and the blasphemy, verse 9 by those who say they are Jews, and these are probably those enemies I just described and are not, but are a synagogue, would you notice, of Satan. Satan's name means adversary or slanderer, and these Jews were doing just that to these Christians, and they were of the synagogue of Satan. Now, this is certainly not what, you know, wasn't the sign outside, this is the synagogue of Satan, come on in, you know, he'll greet, Lucifer will greet you at the door, you know, give you a business card, how you doing? Come on in, I'm going to mess up your life and your family. That's not it. But these were the Jewish people, the Jewish religious leaders. And remember, much of the early church was Jewish, so it doesn't mean that every Jewish person rejected Christ. The early church was largely Jewish. However, there was a group of religious people who held on to, um, call it uh, more man's tradition, and rejected Jesus as the Messiah and so Jesus, when he confronted them in John 8, 44, said, you're of your father, the devil. <whistles> Go back and read John 8, about verses 31 through the end of the chapter. And Jesus says, you're of your father, the devil. In other words, you're a synagogue of Satan. It's Satan's work that you're doing, even though you, you hide under the cloak of religiosity. You wear the right clothes. You fast twice a week. You search for converts, land and sea, and then Jesus says, and you make them twice the child of hell as you yourself are. <laughs> Ooh, ouch. But there you go. And so, sadly, it was religious people that were at the core of this persecution. You know, often as you begin to watch church history, turn to the book of Hebrews for 2nd chapter 10, much of the persecution that came to Christians came from religious people. Now, a lot of persecution did happen, Hitler and Stalin and, and people like that. But if you read, like, for example, at the time when the Bible was trying to be placed into the hands of the common man, the people who were being burned at the stake were being burned at the stake by religious people. People who were being called to the witness stand and saying, if you don't recant your words against the Pope or against this, you're going to die. People were paying with their lives. The reason you have a Bible tonight is because people actually made a decision that getting the Bible to you was more important than their very lives. Wow, look at Hebrews 10, verse 32. It says, Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering. Hebrews 10, 33. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to, to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay." But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now faith, chapter 11, verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, by faith, men of old gained approval. Back to Revelation 2. The church at Smyrna was suffering materially, but Jesus said they were wealthy spiritually. We'll see another church later that thinks they're rich, and Jesus says, you're poor. You think you're wealthy, but you're miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The church at Smyrna thought that they were poor, but they were actually rich. Have you ever met somebody? Maybe you've done some traveling, and you meet a Christian in another part of the world, and they're one of the richest people you've ever met, and they have relatively nothing in terms of material possessions. And you're like humbled by their faith, and you're like, they have a bigger smile on their face 24-7 than I do as a Christian in the West that has, you know, all the stuff at my fingertips. What's wrong with me? Sometimes we're materially prosperous, but we're spiritually poor. Smyrna was being pressed, but they were giving off a sweet fragrance of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was anointed in John chapter 12, Jesus said, let her alone in order that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with, with you, but you do not always have me. And in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. So Smyrna was going through it, and you may be going through some difficulty tonight. Maybe it is persecution from family. Maybe you're going through a sickness tonight. Maybe you're just struggling with pressure from a job or a relationship. Well, Paul said to Timothy, here's one thing you can take to the bank. All those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. <laughs> it's, it's a promise. I know you haven't put on in your refrigerator lately. But all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. This is what Jesus did for us. But it doesn't mean that the uh, suffering is easy. It's not easy for anybody. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, do not fear, Revelation 2.10, what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil, notice the devil is the one behind this, even though it'll be done probably by Romans and soldiers. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have, here's our word again, tribulation, thlipsis, 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. The devil had asked for permission to sift Peter as wheat. Remember Jesus told Peter, Peter, come over here for a second. Come into my office. Just by the way, Satan's been asking for permission to sift you as wheat. <laughs> Peter probably was thinking, Lord, why did you share that with me? That's information I would have rather not known. But I have prayed for you. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that there was a target on Peter. He knew that Peter was about to fail. The devil's about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. Look, testing is part of the Christian faith. God is ultimately the one behind everything. He's sovereign, so he has a leash on the devil, just like in the story of Job. The devil was able to get at Job, but there were parameters. And here, the devil is able to do some things to Christians at Smyrna, but it will only be temporary and it will be for the testing of their faith. What the devil uses for a temptation, God uses for a test to make us better. We're not better unless we go through tests, right? When we go through tests, we get testimonies, right? That's how it works. None of us invite them into our life. I hope you don't. I don't. And if we ever are praying together, please don't pray that. I will release your hand because I don't want any of that spilling over into my life. But look, we're going to go through it. You're going to be tested 10 days. That means it's going to be 
temporary. It's not going to be long. The, the test will end at some point. That's, that's some of what we struggle with, with tests and difficulties and tribulation, isn't it? We wonder, is this ever going to end, Lord? Is, it, is, it, is this going to go on forever? Am I going to be stuck at this place forever? No, it's going to be 10 days. And the 10 days may be a literal number. Many commentators see it as figurative in that it means a short period of time, short, not an extended period of time, like we have the thousand years. Some people believe the thousand years in Revelation 20 is figurative. I don't, but some people do and say the thousand years means an elongated number and 10 days means a short number if you're taking the figurative approach, but the number could be literal. It could just be a literal 10 days that they're going to suffer in prison. And most scholars see a tie back to the book of Daniel. And you guys all know that in Daniel 1, 2, and 3, Daniel and his three friends went through some tests. The first test was the food of the king. And Daniel purposed in his heart, Daniel 1, I think it's verse 8, that he would be, not be defiled by the king's delicacies. Oftentimes when you sat with a king, the food that he had, the wine that he had was sacrificed to false gods, but they also believed that the king himself was a god. And so Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. And they had a little test, remember? Daniel said, okay, we'll have veggies and water for 10 days. And the other young up-and-comers can have whatever from your table. And let's see who's better at the end of 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his friends, having eaten their spinach, were dun 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 very strong, right? And the other guys weren't looking so great. They had eaten meat and wine. I mean, would you be better off with broccoli and carrots and water for 10 days or meat and wine every day at the king's table? If you had meat and wine every day at the king's table, I think you'd be walking around. <laughs> Daniel and his buddies were ready to go. It was a 10-day test. The 10-day test, when it came to the king's delicacies, led into another chapter that was much greater in difficulty as Nebuchadnezzar raised up a 90-foot colossal statue made in his image on the plain of Dura, gathered all the peoples of the lands and said, when the band begins to play, everybody's bowing to my statue. And if you've ever watched the VeggieTales version, how many of you have seen the VeggieTales version? Praise the Lord. The little guy, I don't even know what vegetable he is, says, hey boss, there's three guys in your kingdom. They're not bowing down to your statue. What's going on around here, says Nebi K. Netzer. <laughs> and he confronts them. I'm going to give you another chance. When the music plays, you're going to bow. And remember the classic response back to our Bible <laughs> is, King Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow to your statue. And we believe that God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, know today we are not bowing to your idol. That's faith. And Nebi, oh, he wasn't happy. He said, heat up the furnace seven times hotter than it's normally heated up just in case the God of Israel can't deliver people from furnaces that are seven times hotter just from normal furnaces of fire. Everybody with me? Seven times hotter. Well, when the guards threw them in, they got fried by the fire. It was so hot. Ah, they all die. And remember, as the Hebrew youths go in, and here, uh, this time, without Daniel, as I recall the story, there's a fourth one in the fire. And he's, Veggie Tales, real shiny. <laughs> hey, boss, didn't we throw three guys in there? There's a fourth walking around, and he looks like the Son of God. Jesus didn't pull them from the fire, but walked with them in the fire. When you go through your tribulation, I have no biblical guarantee that God always heals, always gets us, you know, an escape in terms of we get out of the situation. He provides a way of escape in temptation. Certainly, there's always a way of escape. But when we're going through testing and trial, that's a different category. And what happens is Jesus joins us often in the trial. Sometimes he does remove it. Sometimes it lasts 10 days and it's gone. Sometimes it's longer. Sometimes it's shorter. But the 10 days is probably in a, at least an allusion to the book of Daniel. You're going to be tested. It's not going to be forever. 
Some of you need to note that tonight. It's not going to be forever. You'll have tribulation 10 days. And then he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That is eternal life. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who can kill your body, but they're unable to kill your soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Matthew 10, 28 through 31. So Jesus gives us promises. He doesn't promise easy things, but he promises to be with us in the tribulation and in the fire. And so the church at Smyrna is being encouraged to hold on, and when they do, they will receive the crown of life. Turn quickly to the book of James. We're just about done, but go to James for a second. James chapter 1. James brings up the crown of life, and I think here simply it speaks of eternal life. The word crown here is not diadema, which is the crown of a king, but it is Stephanos. It's the crown of life. It is the victor's crown. It's the wreath of flowers given to the winner at the Olympic Games, for example. And James 1.10 says, Let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. James 1.11 The sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off. The beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed, by contrast, is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Paul will say in 2 Timothy 4 that all, to, all those who love is appearing. Go to, back to Revelation 2 and we'll finish it up. Some of you are familiar with a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And make the connection, just reaffirm it tonight. He was the bishop of this fellowship. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And he began um, that role somewhere around A.D. 115. If the book of Revelation was written in A.D. 95, which is the majority of scholars, it is quite possible that Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, read the letter written to Smyrna. And Polycarp, somewhere around A.D. 155, he was 86 years old, refused to worship the emperor. This is a story documented in historical sources. Um, Martyr, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, for example. And Polycarp was told, you know, they wanted to have mercy on him. He's this older man. And they said, look, just acknowledge the emperor as Lord and we will not kill you. And Polycarp's famous response was, 80 in six years, he has done me no wrong. I will not deny him. And they said, then we're going to burn you. And he said, your fire may last for a little while, but watch out for the eternal fires that await those who don't know Jesus Christ. Your fire will burn for a little while, and then it will go out. And so they burned Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, at the stake. This is what the church has faced over the years, but faced it with bravery and with an eye on eternity. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And finally, he who has an ear, let him hear, Revelation 2.11, what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death we're going to see several times in the book of Revelation. We'll see it in chapter 20 and other places. And here's what the Bible teaches. If you're born twice, you will die once. The Bible says you must be born again of the Holy Spirit. And when you're born again of the Holy Spirit, the second death will not harm you. Because you've been born to life. You're written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the ones who experience the second death are those who are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You can write down Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. They're cast into the lake of fire. But those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they've been born twice, physically and then spiritually, they will die once. Now, one generation will not die at all. That's that last generation. But for everybody else, if you're born twice, 
Born physically, born again spiritually, you'll die once. A physical death. If you're born once, you'll die twice. Physically, and then you're going to die spiritually. In fact, you're already dead spiritually as a non-believer, but the ultimate destiny will be judgment. And so I would just say, make sure you've been born twice. Amen? You might say, well, Pastor Michael, what does it mean to be born again of the Holy Spirit? It means to be born from above. Nicodemus in John 3 had that question. He said, how can a man be born again when he's old? Am I going to do one of those movies where it's a reverse aging thing and I end up back in my mother's womb? Is that what's going on here? Is that what you're talking about? And Jesus said, no. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. These words that I'm speaking to you, in other words, are spirit and they are life. And I think as I look at you tonight, I see many born-again believers. Praise God. You've been born twice. You're only going to die once. Should the Lord tarry, right? But we will not taste the second death. In fact, we will be in the presence of our King forevermore. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you so much for the church, the faithful church at Smyrna, and these encouraging words from the Lord of the church, who himself suffered persecution an unjust, wrongful death, but did it all to conquer sin and death. And through his suffering, we have been healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And you, Lord, laid the iniquity of us all on your precious lamb. Thank you for his suffering. He is the Passover lamb, the suffering lamb, who now reigns forever and ever and Lord, I, I know you know our tribulation even tonight, and I pray you'd minister to every precious soul. Meet them right where they are. Minister your grace, minister your strength, your abiding presence, your promises, all that the precious people hearing this would need tonight. If you're not a Christian, I would just beg you, be reconciled to God. You must believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, you must receive him as your Lord and Savior. Believe in his resurrection and just repent and turn to him. And you can be born again of the Holy Spirit. You can be saved. You can have the weight of your sin removed from you. And you can know you're on your way to heaven. If that's you tonight and you've not settled it, do it right now. Something like this. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you came to this world to suffer for me. I believe you died on that cross for my sin. I believe you rose to defeat death itself, my great enemy. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. As my Lord and my Savior, change my heart. Change me to be more like you. Cause me to be born again of your Holy Spirit, to be born from above, to have a new life, to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. Lord, for those who are crying out, maybe rededicating or just planting their moorings a little deeper tonight, may you bless them, may you encourage them, may you strengthen them in Jesus' holy name. Amen.